This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. With me on the show today is a guest that I actually had the privilege of getting acquainted with in a recent visit to New York, Professor Peter Beinart of the City University of New York, also an editor-at-large with Jewish Currents, and uh, you can also see his writings over at peterbeinart.substack.com. A pretty vocal critic of Israel these days. I think uh, someone who really does represent uh, a growing sector of diaspora Jews, especially in the United States. And uh, I thought it'd be important to bring Peter on the show and uh, give him an opportunity to really share some of his ideas, some of his views, some of his journey with us. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. All right. Before we dive in, can you share with our listeners a little bit about your own journey? Like, I, I think you do represent an important subset of diaspora Jews. What's impressed me about you in the limited interaction we've had is really your ability uh, to be dynamic in your approach, to incorporate new information and to shift your positions when necessary based on that incorporation of new information. So can you share a little bit about your own development when it comes to your relationship with the state of Israel and your understanding of Palestinian issues? Sure. Um, my parents are South African immigrants to the United States. Um, as you know, I'm sure South African Jewish community is a very Zionist community. And I was I grew up in a house where um, uh, Zionism was considered very important. I think particularly the fragility of the South African Jewish community um, created for my parents a sense that Israel was a really important place as a Jewish refuge. My grandmother in particular was born in Alexandria and then moved to the Belgian Congo and South Africa always had a very big impact on me, particularly I think had this sense that her brother was in Israel and that that was the only place really that ultimately Jews would be safe. Um, uh, she wasn't a big fan of me when I seemed too pro-American um, or too confident about the United States. Um, but I also, as a teenager during the first intifada, I began to feel that something was wrong with Israel's treatment of Palestinians. And so, like many other people, I thought that the way to balance these imperatives of Palestinians deserving citizenship in a state um, and there being a Jewish state uh, to provide Jews protection and representation would be uh, a two-state solution, a Palestinian state alongside a Jewish state. And I held that view for many years. It also seemed to me a kind of a way of, of dealing with the inherent and fascinating tension within Judaism between universalism and particularism between our obligations to ourselves, our, our you know, Jews as an extended family and our obligation to the world at large. Um, but over time, I began to, to recently reconsider that. Um, first, because it simply seemed to me that the nothing about Israel's infrastructure project in the West Bank looked temporary. Um, and uh, people kept saying that a two-state solution would be impossible after this date and after this date. They've been doing that since the early 80s, and, and, and that date kept passing. But secondly, I began to feel like a two-state solution didn't address more fundamental, deeper issues, um, one of which is the right of Palestinian refugees to return. It just it began to feel to me that there was this strange and terrible irony about the fact that Jews of all people who have nurtured this historic memory of our homeland and created this movement to return over 2,000 years should be telling Palestinians who were expelled 75 years ago that they need to forget and move on and they can't return to the places they were from. Um, so that led me to write a, uh, an essay last year um, arguing uh, for one equal binational state um, and another, argu another arguing for Palestinian right of return. Um, I still consider myself a, a Zionist of a kind, a cultural Zionist. I still believe in the 
the deep importance of a Jewish society in what we call the land of Israel, but I think it can coexist within a framework of legal equality in all of the land between the river and the sea. Okay, well, that's really where you got my attention. Uh, I know that for a long time you were perceived here as very much a poster boy of the, you know, diaspora two-state cheerleading squad. And, uh, you know, last year when you started to pivot towards exploring what an equal one state could look like, that's really where I started to take notice of the things that you were writing. And uh, I think we were invited to debate on uh, the great debate, right? That's where we met the first time. Yeah. And I, you know, as we were talking, uh, I realized that uh, I agree with a lot of what you say in, in terms of values, in terms of creating a deeply Jewish society between the river and the sea that can be inclusive enough for Palestinians to also achieve their aspirations alongside ours. So first of all, why do you think that is? Why do you think so many, especially Israelis, I think diaspora Zionists are a little bit of a different creature, but why do you think so many Israelis have trouble bestowing to Palestinians or acknowledging, acknowledging uh, the Palestinian desire or need to return uh, when, as you said, we spent so many centuries yearning to come back to our land, at times actively struggling to come back to our land. Why do you think Israelis have trouble extending that to Palestinians? I mean, I think part of the challenge here is just embedded in the language itself. When we talk about Israelis, right, we're really, I think, I think you're talking about Israeli Jews. 20% of Israel citizens, as you know, are Palestinians. Um, I think many of them would not have a problem with Palestinian refugees returning. Um, um, among Israeli Jews, I, I think, and you know, you as an Israeli may be able to better answer this question than me, um, but it seems to me fundamentally the um, it's a it, the, the notion of Palestinian refugee return is perceived as a threat to Jewish uh, demographic superiority and Jewish political superiority, or one might even say supremacy. Um, and that rate, and 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 so if that power is threatened, um, then that's perceived as a, a, a deep threat to Jewish safety. And I can understand why people might feel that way. Um, given the, you know, given the Jewish experience, it's not a crazy set of feelings to have. I myself feel some of those same emotions, but I actually think that um, they need to be interrogated and questioned because I think that actually, in my view, it's not only, it's, 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 it's morally, it's simply morally wrong to expel a group of people and tell them they can't return to the places they're from. And I also believe that that the discourse about Palestinian and Palestinian refugees often assumes that Palestinians have um, have some of different desires than 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 the rest of us do. The Palestinian desire is, is is kind of inherently to try to murder and menace Jews. When in fact, I think what most Palestinians really want is simply the ability to have a relationship with the places that they were born, which are deeply, deeply important to them, and to live dignified, prosperous lives. Uh, um, and when I read the Palestinian writing about refugee return and the Palestinians and some Israeli Jews who are working on this, I see very little of a, of a language of, this is great, now we have the ability to kick the Jews into the sea. It's more about, we want to be able to exercise our basic rights to a dignified, free life alongside Israeli Jews in one equal country. Mm -hmm. So I'll share some of my thoughts. I've been here about 20 years now. Uh, and, you know, a couple things I discovered, uh, one of which is, I think most of Israeli society or what you call Israeli Jewish society, you know, I, I, I think it's important to define terms. And 
I, I think, and again, this isn't, you know, I'm going to present this as neutral. I don't want to say good, bad. I, I just want to present this as a, as a sociological fact that I observe. Most Jews in this country, when they say Israeli, they mean Jews. Meaning, I know that a lot of our, let's say the sector of Israeli society that faces the outside world the most, whether it's our academics, whether it's some of our politicians, or some of our artists, um, they tend to try to present uh, the idea of being an Israeli as a civic national identity in the style of a Canadian. But I think most Jewish Israelis, when they say Israeli, they really mean B'nai Israel. They really mean the children of Israel. And I think that's something that came out last spring uh, during the violence that uh, took place specifically in places like Lod and Batyam, et cetera. And I think it needs to be addressed, meaning I don't think, um, I'm not putting it out there positive or negative. I, I think it's just something we need to take into consideration when we try to solve this. I think we just need to know where people are at. Yeah, can I just respond? I think what you're saying is a really, really crucial, crucial point. And, mm -hmm. and it speaks to the fact that there is no Israeli nationality. There is really citizenship, right? But there is no, you cannot have an Israeli nationality. You can have a Jewish nationality, Arab nationality. And I think that, but when people use Israeli as synonym for Jew, what they're doing is they're erasing essentially 20% of their own citizens, let alone all those Palestinians who are under Israeli control who don't have citizenship. And it's that act of erasure, it seems to me, which is connected to the very inherent second-class nature of Palestinian citizenship, that you, even inside the Green Line, that you can talk about Israelis and, and what Israelis want and how Israelis feel and what Israelis do without any reference to that 20% of the population who aren't Jews. And that I think is part of the problem with the whole notion of Jewish statehood. Okay, and I would even say that part of the issue that I think needs to be addressed is that the perception of most Israeli Jews who identify being an Israeli with being a Jew, like the terms are synonymous, um, yeah. they relate to Palestinians, whether we're talking about Palestinians with Israeli citizenship or Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza without Israeli citizenship or Palestinians, you know, abroad, they relate to them as an enemy population we've been at war with for roughly 100 years. I think that is the perception of most Israeli Jews. So just again, this is in the interest of confronting the reality. And uh, when most Israeli Jews hear this, like, like hear some of the things you're saying, they're very dismissive because they, you know, it's easy, by the way, when you're coming from outside, when you're a Jew living in the diaspora, to be dismissed as at best uh, a well-meaning, you know, naive, don't really understand. We've been at war here for a long time. And I think it's easier. And wh whether you're looking from the outside in or, or you're somebody like me who came here and is familiar with the way things are and the way things look elsewhere, uh, I think it's easier to maybe have a broader perspective because you haven't spent your entire life in this conflict. But I, I remember, you know, I came here during the second Intifada where I think a lot of the kind of collective Israeli attitude towards the Palestinians, I, I don't want to say it was forged because I think it was forged a long time before then, but it was reinforced. And I think that, that, that experience really, you know, the generation that's now in their 20s and 30s, the newer voters, are the yes. generation that really came of age against the backdrop of the failure of the Oslo Accords and the Second Intifada. Yes, 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 yes. It needs to be addressed. Again, I just think it's something that has to be part of the conversation when trying to move forward.
Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think, look, I understand um, that there's a natural desire, and I think it's not only, it's a natural tendency, it's not only true among Israeli Jews, I think it's true among many people that, that you know, critics from outside are sometimes looked at um, suspiciously. And, you know, you know, when sometimes even you can see this, you know, when Europeans lecture Americans uh, about, um, you know, all of the terrible things in the United States that we do in terms of gun violence or lack of health care or whatever racist sometimes you'll find that even progressive americans say you know we don't want to hear it you, you know what do you know um so i think that's a natural that's a natural a natural tendency and i and i certainly speak with a lot of humility partly because the country in which i live the united states is so profoundly problematic in so many ways itself um but i also think that you know if i'm honest i think that sometimes we exaggerate how much knowledge proximity brings i mean I live in New York, which is a place I know that you grew up. If, if I have to be honest about how much I know about what happens in certain parts of New York where I don't live, I don't know a whole heck of a lot, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and the fact that I might only live, a, a, you know, five miles or three miles or even one mile away doesn't necessarily mean that I know very much um, unless I actively go out and seek out that knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think that, and I think unfortunately that can sometimes be the case for Israeli Jews as well, that unless you have sustained interactions with Palestinians of the kind that you've had and you you read Palestinian writing and you and you expose yourself to Palestinian discourse that simply living relatively near some other group people doesn't necessarily actually allow you to understand their experience very well right no that's a fair point and uh, in fact I would more than agree I would argue that uh, the problem really on both sides with Palestinians and Israelis here is that we are superimposing like our fantasy antagonist identity on the other like we don't know each other like most Israeli Jews don't really know Palestinians. We know how they appear as the bad guys in our story and vice versa. I mean, the difference obviously is that Israelis actually do have the upper hand, actually do have control and Palestinians don't. So that, that's an important point you're making. You know, I saw that you, you know, recently dropped a piece on Naftali Bennett, our new prime minister, uh, for better or worse, and uh, really questioning or I'd say challenging all of the positive coverage Bennett's received in Western liberal publications. Uh, can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. I mean, I think that, look, among Democrats in Washington, there was just a tremendous sense of relief, as you know, to not have Benjamin Netanyahu because he was, um, you know, so associated with Republicans. And, and, and he was he seemed to almost kind of relish these confrontations with America's leaders. And I think for Joe Biden, frankly, what Joe Biden really wants is to not pay attention to Israel-Palestine, not and pay as little attention to the Middle East as possible, turn his attention to China. Um, and so he sees in Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid people who are willing to be much more conciliatory in terms of the way they present themselves. And I think that's true. You know, they, they are more they do. They do present themselves in a more conciliatory way. And they talk about wanting to make Israel a bipartisan issue. Um, but I think that has been conflated a little bit. And, you know, and, and, and they did do something important, I think, in getting rid of Netanyahu, who I think clearly had certain authoritarian Trump-like tendencies. They also did something laudable in, to my mind, in bringing in uh, Palestinian Arab party, which is, you know, almost unprecedented, in, as you know, in Israeli politics. Um, but I think what's happened in the U.S. press to some degree has been there's been a conflation of those stylistic differences with policy differences. Right. And as again, you know, um, and we're now seeing more evidence, you know, Netanyahu about his policies, really, um, when it comes to the Palestinians and when it comes to Iran are not really very different. I mean, we see you know, um, uh, continued settlement expansion. Um, and I want to make clear because, I, you know, I don't have a problem 
with Jews living in the West Bank. For me, the problem is not that there's anything sinister about Jews living in the West Bank. Far from it, I can totally understand why that would be a beautiful experience for people. To me, the question, the problem is, is legally living in a territory where you have citizenship and live under civil law alongside neighbors who live under military law and don't have citizenship. It's got nothing to do with the West Bank inherently. Um, but obviously those policies continue of encouraging us settlement growth. And also you have now these banning of uh, six Palestinian human rights organizations. So I think what it illustrates is there's a there's a superficial difference in terms of the way this new government presents itself and there may be differences in terms of some of the way they treat domestic Israeli issues maybe the Haredim or maybe certain economic development issues but in terms of the way they treat Palestinians particularly in the West Bank uh, in Gaza I don't think you're really seeing a, a, a substantive change and that was the point I was making. I definitely agree with that point. Um, and I would even go so far as to say that it's clear the U.S. ruling class doesn't care about Palestinians, meaning at the end of the day, that's not, the, you know, the daily lives of the average Palestinian is not important to Joe Biden, just like it's not important to Donald Trump. Uh, right. But, right. but I think what Bennett has done, and I, and I assume this is why he's so celebrated, uh, you know, by certain people here domestically and also by the Western liberal media, is because he's kind of saved liberal Zionism to a certain extent. He's given Israel's westernized elites a rare opportunity to rule despite the fact that they cannot win an election. Uh, you know, uh, Devar uh, recently came out with an interesting poll about how Israelis voted in the last election according to class. And uh, they found that the wealthiest sliver of Israeli society voted for Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid, uh, followed by um, Horowitz and Michaeli. And uh, among national religious voters, the more affluent voted for Bennett and the less affluent voted for Smotrich. Um, I think both Shas and Ram, uh, Ram being the Islamic party, Mansour Abbas's party that you mentioned is in Bennett's government, you know, they were at the bottom. So what you essentially have with this government is it's basically the parties representing the wealthiest uh, sliver of Israeli society with Ram, you know, with this Islamic party that is, in my opinion, doing something quite remarkable. They've decided that they don't want to get involved in national issues. They want to copy the Haredi model and get as much as they can for their electorate and really serve the interests of, you know, Palestinians with Israeli citizenship who have been neglected by the state and haven't been getting yeah. social services and, you know, municipal funding, etc. And, and I actually, I was interested in seeing a government which was Mansour Abbas's first choice. What Mansour Abbas was very clear about during the coalition negotiations was he wanted to sit together with Likud and Shas and Smotrich and the Ashkenazi Haredim uh, because he actually saw them as his natural partners. And those parties are consistently growing because they represent growing demographics in Israeli society. Like those parties actually represent yeah. the people uh, for better or worse, you know, whether or not that's attractive to Jews in the diaspora or attractive to the New York Times is a different question, but that is where Israeli society is headed. And I think that those are the Israelis who need to learn to sit with Palestinians and actually forge new kinds of relationships. I, I was actually very frustrated with Bezalel Smotrich because I thought he missed an incredible opportunity, not just to form a government, but to reimagine what our relationship with Palestinians can be. 
and to be part of that reimagining. And he, he clearly wasn't ready for that. Like I, I see that uh, Smotrich and his partners weren't ready for that. You know, but for those who know what goes on behind the scenes, Netanyahu has been cooperating with Mansour Abbas for years, meaning they've been, they've been working together. But the difference I think here, I think uh, even though Abbas would have preferred to be in a, a government with with parties that he feels he shares more in common with, I think what he likes about this arrangement is that it's public, is that he's able to be publicly part of the coalition and isn't treated like an unwanted, invisible partner. Yeah, I think you're making a really interesting point, you know, and it's interesting to see Israel in kind of transnational context. And I think that's part of the reason also for the positive response to Bennett is people see in the U.S., some people, the Democrats particularly, see Bennett as a kind of equivalent to Biden um, in the sense that he was able to bring a a broad tent coalition to get rid of Trump. And also they look at the, for instance, the coalition that's emerged in Hungary, a kind of broad tent coalition to try to overthrow Orban. And they see Bennett's coalition as part of that. But I think what you're getting at, which is really important is that I think in many countries today, you see two different cleavages. You see one, a cleavage based on, I would say kind of, let's say civic nationalism versus ethnic nationalism, or versus the idea of a country that with, which offers equality under the law to all people, irrespective of race, religion, or ethnicity, versus a kind of a, a, um, a, the notion of a, of a state that, that's, that privileges people of a certain race or, or ethnicity. Um, and then you also see this divide over, you could say the winners and losers of globalization, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so the Democratic Party is, I mean, it's, it's, this is a crude, it's not entirely true, but the Democratic Party is a, really, the, the, on the one hand, the party of people in the United States um, who want that, that civic nationalism, that kind of equality under the law, but it's also increasingly appealed to winners in globalization more than it did several decades ago. Um, um, and I think that what you're, it seems to me you're saying is that um, what, would be, um, what, what would be fascinating in Israel is if you could have a coalition of people who we might call the losers in globalization, people who, for whom neoliberal capitalism hasn't really been a big success, um, uh, who could also um, not, be, not take the position that, um, you know, that they need to be supreme over Palestinians, um, but actually could see their interests as aligned with Palestinians. This, you know, the great vision of the American left was always the idea that in the South, you could have a coalition of working class black and white Southerners um, to try to over, overthrow the kind of the aristocrat, the oligarchic ruling class, for instance. Uh, and it seems to me, in a way, what you're talking about is a kind of a Israeli version of that vision, which I find, you know, quite appealing. Right. I don't know if I would frame it that way, only because I generally try to shy away from imposing uh, Western framings on Israeli society. I think Israeli society needs to be understood as as actually much more similar to our neighbors in many ways than to you know Western societies. Uh, I know uh, you know it's clear that uh, Zionism definitely used a lot of colonial tools and methodology. Uh, we're unique in history. You know we're the only people I can think of that was destroyed thousands of years ago, held onto our identity, and came back to the land we were displaced from, but using tools of colonialism. So that makes Israeli society very um, complicated. I think we have an identity crisis. I think we have a lot of trauma from exile. I think Palestinians are very much the victims of that trauma. And the only way forward, I think, is to actually unpack that, what I would call a post-colonial conversation at a national level. Uh, But at the same time, I, I think that, you know, what it comes down to, you know, this government, you know, which to me just, it's a plutocracy at the end of the day, 
Um, it's serving U.S. interests, meaning it's keeping Israel as an outpost of Western civilization, even though it's not making any movement in any direction on the Palestinian front. It's definitely driving a policy of you know rapid Westernization, uh, trying to challenge uh, what a lot of Israelis consider to be part of the Jewish nature of the country. And uh, as you pointed out, I think the problem is that we haven't transcended the ostensible friction between Jewish national aspirations and universalism. Meaning, I think ultimately, if the Jewish Israelis who are deeply committed to their Jewish identities, to Jewish history, to Jewish aspirations, the things we've wanted for thousands of years, the way we've seen ourselves for thousands of years, they're deeply committed to those things. If we can um, arrive at a model of universalism that is truly democratic and truly inclusive and uh, actually creates a dignified place for the other in our society without compromising on our identity, without forcing us to be less who we are, uh, I think that would appeal to a lot of the people who are voting for Shas, for a lot of the people who are voting for Smotrich, for, for even a lot of the people who are voting for Bibi. I think that that's something that, you know, part of the problem, as I pointed out before, is that most Israelis like deeply experience Palestinians as the enemy we've been locked in conflict with for roughly 100 years and deeply believe that if we were to give up our control, you know, the domination that we can call the occupation, meaning that military bureaucracy that controls the daily lives of Palestinians, if we were to give that up, most Israelis think that we'd be slaughtered in the streets. And that's the problem. The problem is there is fundamentally a lack of trust. Uh, there's a lack of trust on both sides, obviously. And because I do acknowledge we have the power, you know, we're in control. There's no way forward other than Israel making the first move towards building trust. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's not only Israeli society that needs to shift. At the end of the day, there will need to be some kind of uh, reciprocity. Israelis are going to have to change the way we experience Palestinians uh, psychologically, just as Palestinians are going to have to change the way they experience us psychologically. And unfortunately, we're far away from that. I thought those Israelis, those political parties that really do champion Jewish identity the most should have, could have, you know, they really missed an opportunity to reframe the relationship. Even though I don't think a Likud-led government with Ram would have solved all of our problems or solved the conflict, I do think it could have been a meaningful step towards reimagining the type of relationships that we could have. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I think on the one hand, the, the fear, if you are dominating other people and you have legal supremacy, the mm -hmm. fear that legal equality would mean that you became the group that were dominated, if not killed, is not unique to Israeli Jews. I think that's a tip, that's a typical dynamic that takes place. I mean, I think if you looked at Protestants in Northern Ireland uh, mm -hmm. or white South Africans or white Americans, um, you know, uh, during the period of Jim Crow and even today, to a large degree, white, so many white Americans, there's this fear that basically legal equality means your subordination, if not death. Um, um, there's an important difference here, maybe. And it, and, and it doesn't justify it, yeah. but I think the important difference is twofold. Number one, the experiences many Jews, especially Ashkenazim, had consistently been having before coming back here. Meaning it's not, I don't think white Protestants in Northern Ireland or, uh, or the American uh, settlers had the same experience that the Jewish people had in places like Poland or the Ukraine, etc. Or Auschwitz, certainly not. 
uh, and that trauma definitely uh, dictates how we relate to conflict and how we, especially when we have power for the first time in 2000 years. And, and yeah. also, our, also our experiences with the Palestinians. Like I would argue, actually, there's a, there's a book, I think Hillel Cohen at Hebrew University has a book on 1929 and how he, sure. he teaches that 1929 was really the, the year and the series of events that really uh, solidified the collective Jewish Palestinian attitude uh, towards the Arabs here. And I think that, that that needs to be part of the conversation. Again, I'm not bringing this up in order to yeah. justify or defend, I, I, more to explain yeah. and more to, to, yeah. say, to just kind of like throw Israeli Jews into the same bucket with white Protestants in Northern Ireland or, or all these other examples of like oppressor groups who are afraid of equality or the Connors. Like, I, I think that we really do need to acknowledge that Jews, from a historical perspective, we just came into contact with power again for the first time in thousands of years after layers and layers and layers of traumatic persecution. And we have reasons to not trust the Palestinians. Yeah, I, I guess I would say a couple of things. Obviously, you're right that, that, that the Jewish experience of historic persecution culminating um, in, in, uh, in attempted genocide um, is different and um, uh, uh, profoundly different, and that there is a lot of that historical trauma. Um, but I also think it's important for us to acknowledge that that a particular story gets told about the lessons of those experiences True. um that, and, and then gets passed down from generation to generation each generation obviously had no firsthand experience of these things and and there's that's a particular conscious decision by, i think by and this happens in the in among diaspora communities too um to tell a particular kind of story about what the lessons of that persecution is whereas that that's not the only potential story right there are other jews who tell um who tell different stories i mean uh, you know um, uh, it's not, you know, Amira Haas's family are Holocaust survivors too, you know, um, and she decided, uh, Sarah Roy's family are Holocaust survivors too. She decided in, in, in her way of giving kavod to her parents was to go live in Gaza, right. um, you know. Um, so I think that th that would be the first point I would make. The second point I would make is that, yes, I don't want to minimize the, 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 the trauma that has been inflicted by violent conflict with Palestinians, which precedes the state. Absolutely right. 1929, 1936. Absolutely. But that also is not unique, which is to say that in any national conflict like this, particularly where you have one group that um, uh, is, um, I mean, Jabotinsky foresaw this. Jabotinsky said basically in the Iron Wall, the Palestinians are going to resist us. It's not because they're pathological in Jabotinsky's view. He said that's what any group would do, right? He said basically, he said he wasn't denying Jewish indigeneity, but he was saying that most of the people here, they were these people were here. Most of us came back and they saw that that we were trying to create a state that would privilege us over them. And they fought that. And so and that and that also happens. That also. Happened. So there was a lot of violence. Um, you know, if you look at the history of Protestants and Catholics in 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 in, in Ireland and Northern Ireland, you see also a great deal of, of violence based on a similar dynamic um, of, of Protestants moving into Catholic territories or or on the American frontier. Right. I mean, where where there was a lot of violence against America, against American settlers by by Native Americans who were resisting. So I, I think that 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 trauma and the fear that it creates is not unique to Jews. Very it's very rare to have any dynamic like this where you don't have violence on both sides, which creates trauma. So, so perhaps the problem and you brought up Jabotinsky, but perhaps the problem is, is Zionism as an ideology. Like I would argue that Zionism um, is today the ideology that really permeates Israeli society. 
And Zionism really only works when the Jewish people can convince ourselves that we are the underdog, that we are weak, that we are punching up. And I think that, you know, for me, one of the major flaws of Zionism, uh, especially today, is that it relates to the Jewish people as an object with a problem. That problem could be anti-Semitism, that problem could be persecution, it could be terrorism, it could be assimilation. Whatever the problem is, Zionism presents itself as the solution to that problem. And I think that now that we have power again, and uh, especially not just power, but ruling over another people, which is something we haven't experienced in forever, um, Zionism doesn't work, meaning we need we need to look at ourselves as a subject with desires. Meaning for me, it's not about, you know, what are the immediate needs or security concerns of the Jewish people? For me, it's what is the world we want to create and how can we use the conditions created by the Zionist movement successes, including the state of Israel, um, in order to try and create that reality. First of all, the type of society we'd like to see in our own country that really uh, expresses our identity and our values and its policies and institutions, including how we treat the other, obviously, but also how are we going to act on the world stage? Like now that we have power again, now that we've returned to the stage of history again, that's amazing. Meaning we're living in, a, in an incredible chapter of our people's story, but we're so stuck psychologically on defense and so stuck relating to ourselves as as the victim. And we have this kind of bunker mentality that doesn't allow us to really be what we came back to be or create what we came back home to create. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, I think um, I find that attractive. I mean, I think maybe there may be elements in the cultural Zionist tradition that that do really focus um, on the question of, 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 of the idea of a Jewish society in the land of Israel as a cultural beacon for for Jews around the world and I think to some you know I think to some degree Israel has achieved some of that I mean obviously just simply the revival of Hebrew as a living language and all of the cultural production that comes out of, of, of Israel in Hebrew it seems to me is itself an extraordinary contribution to Jewish to Jewish civilization um, so I think that there have been there's, there's been great accomplishments um, um, I I would like to but I, I I think that the question you're asking is a uh, is a really important one, and I think that it's. Um, uh, I agree that it's often obscured by the um, by the focus on uh, on essentially the you know the, a kind of eternal battle with Palestinians who are imagined as this kind of new the, the successors to all of the, the the figures in Jewish history, the groups in Jewish history that have come to kill us. Right, the antagonists of our chapter, like they're the bad guys of our chapter of Jewish history. That's the most Israeli thing. Yeah. Sometimes it's Iran. Yes, 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 yeah. Um, you I could go, I, I would love to, I could, we could talk for hours and I would enjoy it. Unfortunately, I have to run, um, but I hope this won't be our last talk. I know, we, we should definitely do this again sometime. Uh, again, I want to thank you for coming on the show and sharing your thoughts. If listeners are interested in checking out your writing, they can either go to peterbeinart.substack.com. Uh, we could put that in the show notes or just go over to Jewish Currents where you're an editor at large. Uh, thanks again for coming on the show. This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine. You're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. If you want to check out the show notes for this show, just go over to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 64. 